This is the show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. My guest today is Deacon Kevin Tulipana, who was ordained deacon for the Diocese of Tulsa in 2014, uh, but is in the process of moving that all over to the Diocese of Phoenix. Lovely place, but awfully hot. Uh, Deacon, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Uh, Part of the the charism of being a deacon is that you are the eyes of the bishop for, uh, for the laity and a voice to him for the laity. And you are, uh, you, you don't work professionally for the church. You are the, um, uh, the executive vice president, let me, if I hear it is executive vice president of the Arizona market for cancer treatment centers of America. Um, you're a DO got that from Des Moines university residency at the Mayo clinic. And then recently you did a master of science in bioethics and medical ethics with the university of Mary in partnership with the national Catholic bioethics center. So before we get too far into this, what is the, the NCBC, the National Catholic Bioethics Center? Because I don't feel like enough people know about this resource. Uh, so explain what their, their mission is and how they perhaps even can serve the, the interested layperson. Yeah. You know, they're, they're a phenomenal organization that's based out of Philadelphia. They've been in, in how many years? But I know it's been decades. And they provide kind of a clearinghouse and an ethics um, um, service for for anybody who really wants them or needs them. But many many hospitals across the country, Catholic hospitals in particular, you know, reach out to them to understand what it is that the church teaches about medical ethics, bioethics, or how to interpret certain things. You know, if you think about the number of Catholic institutions that are out there, they're they're innumerable, right? And those with the background in medical ethics are are much smaller than that. There are a lot of well-intended individuals throughout throughout medicine that, that believe they know the right answer to things, but they don't know how it's founded in church teaching. The NCBC has been there to, to really provide that um, kind of that, that flagship, if you will, um, institution out there that really looks at all the current data, the recent data, the current controversies, puts them into perspective and gives their, their you know, assessment of it. Yeah. Um, so it's a great organization. Um, I remember when I was working at the, the diocese of Tulsa, they have on their website, a section that says, ask an ethicist. Uh, and there were some, some things happening that we needed a professional opinion upon because yeah. these things, you know, they're not as clearly cut and black and white as we often like to make them. There are so many issues that go into whether an action or a, a, a thing is an ethical action or not. It's not just, yeah. you know, white hats and black hats. Uh, there's, there's so much involved in this that, that has to be weighed and, and held up against the light of church teaching. And so even as a diocesan employee, I think even as an individual who's facing, maybe you're at a hospital that's not a Catholic hospital and they're asking to do something with a loved one that you're not sure about, you can go to the NCBC, the National Catholic Bioethics Center, click that button that says Ask an Ethicist, and they've got people on staff who can help walk through and navigate these very difficult and emotionally charged issues. Yeah, because you're right. They are not. The issues are difficult to really kind of put into context. And we often, you know, we hear one thing and we often, you know, attach ourselves to it as if that's the reality and that's the truth of it. 
but they forget all the nuances and the intentions and the actions that occur in that. And so it, ethics is not, it, it is black and white in that there are truths, obviously. Right. There are things and fundamental you know, principles that we need to stand by. But there are often, you know, nuances of a particular action that make something that you think is questionable, not necessarily unethical. You know? Right. And so getting to that point, you know, when I was uh, growing up and I grew up in the, the Protestant world, but we talked about, you know, people talk about medical ethics and you're like, oh, well, yeah, that's just the term you use when you want to get away from right and wrong. It's ethical, right? But this, yeah. is, this is not the case. <coughs> ethics right. are deeply invested in objective truth, but it takes into account all of the factors that go into an action or a yes. decision. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and we have the gift obviously as Catholics and, and having the, you know, the, the church to kind of help guide us in those, you know, those moral truths, you know, really makes a difference because there are branches of medical ethics that, you know, one can argue one will argue often that, that euthanasia is an ethical decision to someone who's suffering greatly because you're ending that suffering, but they don't put it into context of the, you know, of, of life or the principles that, that we need to really consider as far as the intention of the action and what it does and the sanctity of the light and things like that. So we are blessed with the fact that we've got the church to help guide us in those decisions. But at the same time, we also have this, this ethical you know, framework to kind of help build upon in those decisions that may or may not have an opinion or may not have something directed from the church directly. So. Yeah. So I want to get into uh, this specifically and kind of unpack these varying uh, input places of, of an ethical decision um, because we hear about this a lot lately in relation to the vaccine. People yeah. are talking about whether or not the vaccine is moral because of the way that it was created or the way that it was tested. Um, there's a lot of reticence about the vaccine for a number of reasons, and we're not really going to talk about the vaccine as the vaccine today, but rather we're going to use it as a foil for us to understand uh, that the term is cooperation with evil, right? Correct. None of yeah. us, we, we hear that and like, well, just don't do it. Um, <laughs> But I, I, there was a television show on that we did an episode actually about not too long ago called The Good Place. And for all of its problems, uh, and there were a few specifically in the last few episodes, one of the things that it showed really well is that it's almost impossible, if not impossible, uh, the premise, of course, was that no one had gone to heaven in a very long time because everyone had remotely cooperated with evil in some capacity. Uh, that their, yeah. their, their actions, which they intended to be good, ended up having consequences. So I wanted to, to get something at a good price, and so I wanted to take care of my family. And in doing so, I ended up facilitating slave labor across the, the world. And mm -hmm. so now I've cooperated with evil because I got that good price to be able to yeah. feed my family. Uh, and, and so uh, then I went, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to grow all my own food, but in doing so I caused, uh, the, the prices to crash and that affected, um, these people over here as they're trying to make the fruit affordable enough. And so now I've caused their demise and now I've cooperated with evil in that way. Um, let's talk about cooperation with evil. The, the Catholic Church has some criteria about when that's acceptable uh, and in what cases, and even with some saying, well, I don't want to be involved with evil, but 
because of these situations, I'm going to cooperate in this way, and at which times it's absolutely forbidden for us to cooperate with evil. So let's break down those categories mm-hmm. uh, and wherever you want to start, take, yeah, us, take us away. I, I love, well, I'm just, I'm still reflecting upon the imagery of that show that you're talking about. Cause yeah, it is interesting. Every one of our actions has some, in some ways, I mean, that there's some reality to that, right? Everything that we do in some way likely cooperates with evil, unless of course you're, you're a saint and everything is provided for, or you have the unfortunate effect of dying much younger, you know, anyway, that is, that is really quite interesting. And I think, you know, there has been a tremendous amount of controversy in that has been raised regarding the vaccination. When I say the vaccination, the COVID vaccine, and, and, and really we could even unpack that into all vaccines, right? And, and I've even changed my perspective personally after having gone through, at, you know, the ethical training and then really reflecting upon the cooperation with evil. And maybe we need to first understand and get some truth around the potential cooperation with evil in vaccine production and, yeah. and testing like that to start with. And that's probably a good place to start. So most people are aware because there's a lot of misinformation out there. I mean, I've heard people, you know, talking about the current vaccine and with all these, you know, wildly fantastic, uh, you know, uh, uh, science fiction type ideas about what's in it, you know, and, and I think, wow, that's, we're pretty technologically savvy if we can make microchips that small and track people. But anyway, we'll get off of that path. So the <laughs> vaccine, that, the part of it that I think most people are concerned about are, are, you know, the utilization of stem cells. And I think we first, we have to, there's still much misinformation about stem cells, their origin, what they are and what they do. Okay. Yeah. And um, they're, they're, and the use of, of fetal tissue and stem cells. And that's, that's probably the biggest part that people think about, you know, right. the concern that it's, a, that you're somehow cooperating with abortion if you're receiving these. So that, that HEK line. Correct. So there's a stem cell line that was procured decades ago. When I say decades ago, it was in the sixties, you know, and that doesn't make it better that it happened then, but it was procured from a child that was killed in the act of an abortion, which is an evil. We know that the, yeah. the act of killing an innocent person is always wrong, regardless of the intention. Right. It, well, no, it's not always true. Actually, we'll the, get into that in the, a minute. <laughs> the direct killing of an innocent person. <laughs> so, so that's that's where ethics gets you gets you into traps, right? Because it's not always wrong to kill an innocent person. That sounds really out there, but there are instances where it may be. But okay, so the act of abortion is always wrong because yeah. that child did nothing. That stem cell line was was derived decades ago, and that stem cell line is still kept alive today, and it is just cells, and it's you know it's pluripotent cells that can be used for multiple things. That stem cell line is still used today for medical research, um, and it is used today for the production of some vaccines. So they they support, they've got a media there that helps produce the viruses that they can then, you know, purify the vaccine from. There are no, at least I can't recall, and shame on me, I'm not as up to date on these, um, I know the Trump administration held it. The Obama administration allowed some additional research done on that. But there have not been any new stem cell lines derived from embryonic stem cells or those from abortions. All most stem cell lines today are derived from adult stem cells. You know, and so they're not. There's not a cooperation to be with there. Some would argue that because there's a stem cell line produced from that abortion decades ago, that we should not, you know, utilize anything that is manufactured from that. Okay. 
many of the vaccines that are produced today, I know measles, mumps, rubella, Varivax, the, the, the um, uh, human papillomavirus, um, the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine, they actually utilize that stem cell line in the production of the vaccine itself. Right. Um, so there's some concern that there could be some cellular material, whatever. The, the two other, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine or the COVID vaccine actually utilize the stem cell line in early research, but not in the production. So that's important to kind of keep into context as we talk about what it is that the participation with the evil. So that's the part that I think most people are concerned about that truly really think about or, or, or worried about their cooperation with the evil of abortion if they somehow utilize these, these you know, vaccines that were either tested or manufactured utilizing the stem cell. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that's kind of there. I'll stop there, pause real quick and see if you have questions about that. Then we can kind of get into what participation with that evil could potentially be. Well, and as I understand it, this line is not just used in medical research. It's also used in consumer product research. Yes. And so yes. there's this sense of we we know about this, and so there is something to be said for we should speak up about it. One of the, yeah. one of the principles is um, even if we do cooperate, we can still make our voice heard and say, you know, this right. is this is not okay to me. But at the same time, we have to realize that we have participated in this particular evil probably hundreds of times without even knowing it. Yes. Yes, we have. That, that's a, that is an important point. Um, it doesn't make it right, right that ignorance is not bliss, but ignorance does, you know, allow some to, I mean, unfortunately, there are some that, that will keep certain things from other people in order to not make them culpable for their errors. That we, right. we unfortunately, you know, you and I probably have come across, I hate to say this, we've come across clergy that have kind of walked that line and, and felt that ignorance to their flock is probably better, but we are obligated to, to educate people. So yes, once we become aware of it, it's important for us to say to the manufacturers, please identify another source for these. Right. You know, it would be nice for you. Problem is, is that like, like that show you were discussing, the procurement or the production of a new line of stem cells, you know, would take potentially years to get approved for use, number one. Its clarity and its use, its its functionality may not be as you know understood as the stem cell line that's been you've been used for fifty or forty years, fifty years now. Um, it could cost millions, if not billions, of dollars to produce these new lines. So there's there's other things that have to be you know taken into consideration. But it is our obligation to say to these companies, you know, I understand that you're utilizing this. I would prefer you to use something else. Please, you know, do your best to do that. So we have to be a voice in that. Um, but, but but participation with that um, does not in any way, shape, or form condone abortion or the act of abortion or the act of procuring additional stem cell lines from fetal tissue. Um, so so your participation with it is extraordinarily remote. It's removed. It's far away, you know. And then it goes back to the then the, one of the first acts, you know. And it gets into the what we discussed, the principle of double effect, which is like a it's a beautiful, simple, you know way that we can assess whether an act is morally ethical or, or morally good, whether it's ethical. Um, and that's something that we can, we can kind of unpack a little bit here as we have this discussion. Yeah. So. so let's, I'm, I'm going to lay out the quadrant here the, and it's actually more than a quadrant because they're of the, all of the input factors, but we have a cooperation with evil. And now we're going to break that out into a couple of different ways. We're going to say that there is formal cooperation with evil and material cooperation with evil. Then within those, we have um, re- uh, immediate 
cooperation with evil and remote cooperation with evil. And both of those former categories of material and formal. And then we have active and passive. And and all of these kind of overlay one another. And if if you fall in some of these quadrants, you're okay. And if you fall in others, you're not. So let's let's start with formal and material and work our way out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they're all not, you know, they, they sound very formulaic, but it just really gives us, again, a framework to kind of understand things. And so um, the difference is, you know, they're nuanced, obviously. I mean, some of them are easier to kind of describe and understand. I mean, there's the material cooperation, formal cooperation would be that, you know, actively, you know, participating in, um, you know, the action itself, right? So if you were, you know, someone that's working with, that doctor say who did the abortion, you know, that's a formal cooperation, right? And approved uh, of it. Yes. Yeah. And approved of it. Exactly. You weren't coerced to do it. Exactly. Please. Thank you for, for helping me out there. You know, the material cooperation, you could have maybe helped that individual um, with uh, obtaining the materials necessary or the tools necessary to, to actually perform that abortion and you approved of it, you know? So, so for if you instance, were just the electric company, would be yes. material cooperating with the abortion clinic because they're providing electricity that allows them to do the work that they do. Right. But, but the electric company is not necessarily culpable. They can't go and they, you know, shut the electricity off or they could, but as a service they provide to everyone. Right. right. So it, it helps you as far as that. So there's, there's potentially, if that electric company said, Hey, I only provide electricity to people who provide abortions. Well, then there, there, there's a problem, right? right. That isn't, cooperation with it so then there's the the immediate and remote and that's where we get into more of this like i'm I'm immediately cooperating with someone helping them assist with that um again the electric company example is great you know it helps if they're if they're just providing it or supporting it um so it's it's yeah there's 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 several pieces of it right so i (laughs) i grew up in evangelicalism in the 1990s which was like the the age of the boycott right? We're going to boycott mm. you because we disagree with this thing that you do. And, and in a way, there are sometimes that that can be successful because it's making your voice heard. But like the one that I'm calling to mind is a more recent one. It's the boycott of Starbucks because they support Planned Parenthood. So um, I'm not going to buy this cup of coffee, which would be a uh, something that I benefit from because your company does something that I don't like. So here's an example of remote cooperation with evil. I'm not buying that cup of coffee from Starbucks because they support abortion. I, I, I'm doing it in spite of that. And right. the realization in our day and age is that just about every company in some way has some monetary ties to some grave evil, whether it be abortion or something else. And yeah. so in order for us to even... Uh, subsist unless we're all going to go off and live off the grid and, and grow all of our own food. Uh, we're going to have some aspect of that cooperation. Yeah. And that's where intention, your intention makes, makes a tremendous difference in the ethical nature or the morality of an action itself. Mm-hmm. And so what is your intention? If I purposely intend to support our Starbucks because of their, you know, support of, um, yeah, abortion, then, then I'm, I'm doing that for the wrong reason. So if I'm, you know, if I'm supporting, if I'm buying Starbucks, cause darn it, they have good coffee and there's one, you know, right across the street and I can get there and use less fuel and, yeah. you know, I'm time to drop my kids off at school and all these things, these other actions that are also good, you know, they can outweigh that participation in the evil. So, yep. Yeah. 
So now you, you talked about intention. I want to drill down to this yeah. because earlier in the show, you talked about, well, maybe it's not always wrong to, to take an innocent life. Um, yeah. And, and again, that, that comes to this point right here, that point of intention. So you dug this hole. I want you to dig yourself out. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, I did dig this out. Well, when I say that, I mean, you think of, in principle, double effect is often used in, in um, just war theory, right. right? There are times when innocent life is lost in war. Um, you know, you are strategically bombing, you know, a military, you know, site, Unfortunately, that military site may have, you know, and, and we know other people will do this, right? They put innocent life around it um, in order to try to protect themselves. But the, you know, maybe your intention is such that it's going to save just so many other people. Not that the ends justify the means, but there, there may be an unintended evil consequence of an action. But my action is not for the intent of killing the innocent person, per se. So it's not that you're purposely killing that person, but it's an unintended consequence. And that's one of the principles of the principle of double effect. Well, let's take, let's take this back to medical ethics for a second. And I'm yeah. going to use the example of a saint, St. Gianamola. Um, she yeah. is a saint because she went through extraordinary effort to, uh, to save the life of her child by rejecting treatment that would have caused an abortion, not yeah. an intended abortion. The intent would have been to correct what was wrong in her body. But at that same time, that, that action would have taken the life of her child. So mm -hmm. she, through heroic virtue, decided not to do that. And that's what, that's the, the cause for her canonization was brought up because of yeah. that. And we've seen that a couple of times, but yeah. the point of fact remains that that was a heroic virtue an extraordinary right. thing that she did. It could have been that she weighed it better to be alive and present for the children she already had. Uh, and not right. specifically St. Gianamola, but another woman who in, is in that same situation who says, I'm going to trust that God will hopefully protect the life of my child, but I need to get this treatment so I can be present for my other children. And, and so in the process of receiving that medicine with the intention of healing the body, that child may be lost. And in that case, yes, that child, the life of that child has been killed, but it's not an evil. It's not. It's right. not a direct abortion, um, because the intention was such. This is where the principle of double effect comes in. Right. It right. Is, so that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the morality of the act. You know, so in her situation, not to, to conflate the two, but like let's let's make this maybe a little more simple and, and take the heroic virtue part out of it and say just just a simple example of a of a young mother um, that that has uh, you know triple negative, which is a very aggressive form of breast cancer. It happens in young women often. She's pregnant at this time. Yes. You know, obviously, you know, her life, it's very, very likely that, you know, if she did not start the chemotherapy radiation or whatever it was in time of pregnancy, that, that it could progress even further and she could, you know, obviously die at that point. If she decided that, that the act, you know, she was going to treat this cancer to support the life of her kid or other children, right? So that she would have best opportunity to survive, yet it does put the, the child inside of her, her unborn child at risk of dying, the intention in that child died, the intention would not, uh, her intention obviously is not to kill her child that's in utero, rather to treat the cancer um, in that situation. So the evil action is not the reason for her action, right? So that's, there can be two effects. So that's, that's the first primary thing of the principle of double effect. There's an intended good and there's an unintended evil. And the, the, the good must outweigh the evil, of course. 
and the intention can't be the evil, you know. So that's that those that's the primary piece of the principle. One of one of four of the things that we have to consider in the principle of double effect. Five five things. Yeah. Well, so. we even talk about this in the term of of self defense, right? Correct. When I'm defending myself, I am allowed by the church to defend myself up to the point uh, to use enough force to repel the aggressor. Uh, and it could be that in the case of that, that the aggressor uh, dies because I, that's the, the amount of force I had to use in order to protect myself. But St. Thomas Aquinas would go so far as to say that in that, that self-defense, it, should, it can never be my intent that I kill the other person. That always has yeah. to be the unintended effect of me trying to preserve my own life. Correct. Correct. Yeah, you can't you can't be John Wayne out there and have. A, I mean, you can, you can have a gun on your hip, right? But they better be to disable someone or only kill them if it's most necessary. If someone breaks into your house and they're really not giving you any harm, you do not have a right just to kill them. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you, you you need to to protect yourself, but not just to kill them. That's exactly yeah. correct. Yeah. So. so so here here we see that wow, ethics is complex. It is. It is. And even more so whenever you get into things like the remote cooperation with evil, right? And that's yeah. <laughs> Which I want to get into a, a little bit more after this break, but we've only got yeah. about a, a minute left here. Um, as you are surveying the, the landscape of what's happening, and we're not, we're not even getting into the question of, of vaccine mandates or, or any other kind of mandate. We're just talking about the licitness yeah. of, of that participation, um, right. you've mentioned a couple of times that there has to be a proportionate good. What do you see in this case is the proportionate good? So, so here are the pieces that the so the, the act of, of vaccination, the production of the vaccine, is a good because we are in a pandemic. We know that regardless of what your thoughts are on the severity of this illness, you know we all have examples. We have young friends that have been infected with it and end up with acute respiratory distress syndrome and end up dying as a result of it. It's extraordinarily contagious. So the good is that we are protecting the general population with a vaccine that, that we know can reduce the severity of illness um, dramatically. So I, I would, you know, the, the, the good is much, the cooperation with any potential evil in this is greatly outweighed with the good that can come from you know, aggressively getting to a point of, of general immunity, just as it has in measles, mumps, rubella, polio, other, other viruses that caused similar pandemics. Um, you know, we have an opportunity here to participate in that good, you know, and so it is definitely proportionally better than the evil of it. Now, if you're not at any risk at all of, of getting, you know, seriously ill from this virus or other viruses, you may be able to weigh that and say, for me, I don't need to participate in that. I would argue, however, that the good uh, to the general population, the downward pressure on healthcare systems and the allowance of other people to access healthcare and get screenings and get care for other medical illnesses greatly outweighs any potential participation, even for the healthy, for us to get to a point of immunity that we can actually reopen the economy and I'm joined today by Deacon Kevin Tulipana as we talk about the principles of medical bioethics. And there's so much more coming right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. And today we're talking with Deacon Kevin Tulipana. Uh, Deacon, I've got a couple of memories. Um, when I was working at the Diocese of Tulsa, of course, you were ordained in the Diocese of Tulsa. Uh, I was newly hired as the, the Director of Marriage and Family Life. I was eight months a Catholic at this point, so I was still trying to figure out life. Um, and I did a, I did a training for the deacons, you know, we're coming up through getting ready to be ordained. And I did a training on the, the process uh, in the diocese of, of marriage preparation, what it meant to do the pre, prenuptial investigation, what it meant to do the, the, the process that we went through with our pre-canas and everything else. And I have to tell you, I crammed for that because I had no idea because uh, it was shortly after I uh, became Catholic. And we're at this hotel and I, I say to you, well, you know, we had a great conversation. We, we clicked well. And I said, well, we should have you over to our house for dinner sometime. And you looked at me with incredulity. I don't know if you remember this or not saying, um, you know, it's been a, we have eight kids. It's been a long time since anyone's ever invited us over to their home. And uh, at the time I only had three, so I didn't know what you meant, but now that I have eight kids, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. No, great. Congratulations. I love it that you got eight kids too. Yep. We still only have eight kids, but we're getting ready to but a, uh, uh, I guess they're called stepsons. What's son-in-law? I don't even know. Step-son. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> the, I'm kidding. The yeah, other yeah, thing, the other memory I have is um, Easter Vigil. Uh, yeah. Just the purest, most beautiful Easter exultat ever. Uh, that that of course they keep bringing you back for it. And now I don't know what they're going to do uh, because you it's know, just, actually. That, yeah, when I when I asked uh, when I asked Bishop Condrela uh, to to excardinate or leave the diocese, and then you know let Father uh, Father Castle know that that I was leaving. I mean, he he just kind of looked in like shock, like, "What are we going to do at the cathedral? Right? You've been singing the Exalted for eight years now here." I'm like, "Well, you know, you'll make do." So Some, they, 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 yeah, <laughs> they're going to have to train someone else now. Because it's That's a right. it's a long thing. I mean, it's not just a thing you could bone up on over the weekend and and go and sing. It's like a seven minute chant. Fifteen. Oh, if <laughs> you do it right, it is fifteen minutes. I only know that because it takes some stamina. Yeah. Oh <laughs> so. my goodness. Uh, and so uh, eventually, as as luck would have it and providence would have it, we had the ability to to spend some time in Inola, where nearby where you used to live, and participate with with meals and uh, benediction yeah. and all kinds of wonderful things. Um, you, as a parent, as, as a parent, as a father of eight, um, you're wanting to invest your children with the the tools they need the the instruction that they need to persist in the faith for the whole of their life. Uh, this is a, a concern for all of us as parents. We we want to give them the things that they need as we send them out into the world and kind of cross our fingers and hope that it all goes well. Um, and so there is a, a tendency, at least as in my experience, uh, to try and make things as simple categorically as possible right we're just here's the black here's the white stay in the in the white and you'll be okay you, this is the this is the narrow path follow this and it's all going to be all right um and life gets a little bit more complex than that here's yeah. here's an example and this isn't necessarily an intentional example but we dealt with this in marriage preparation all the time 
uh, we talk about unconscious uh, rules, unspoken rules, um, that when you're growing up, you tell the children, we're going to fold the towels. This is how you fold the towels. We're going to mm-hmm. train you to fold the towels. This is the way you do it. And if you don't do it that way, I'm going to bring you back over here and I'm going to have you fold the towels again because this is this is how we do it. And what the child hears and appropriates is this is the morally acceptable, correct way to fold a towel. And then right. they get and then they get married. And then they go and their spouse folds the towels differently. And World War III ensues because you are being immoral in this moment and folding the towel in this abomination of a way. How do we give our children nuance? Certainly, they're not going to become medical ethicists at 11, right? But how do we give them the nuance to be able to see uh, the, the acceptability of of a variety of different options. Yeah. And I'm yeah, asking you this because you're further along than me and I would certainly yeah, have no, advice. It's, it's I struggle with it all the time as you were as you were talking of that. I was thinking of the way that my beautiful wife of 26 years folds the napkins and it still <laughs> irritates me to death because they're different from the way I do it. But <laughs> I've learned to accept it and now right. we just take them out and use them. No. It's <laughs> yeah, it is it is nuance and I think you know, what I have often said to the children and, and I even say to myself whenever I find that I get on these little, these little tangents is, you know, we, we, we have to be, I mean, I almost, I almost cringe when I say this because it's something that as a, as a younger Catholic or in certain aspects of my formation or throughout life and nuance, you know, I always cringe when people are like, oh, you got to be more pastoral. But, but there is truth to that because, you know, we, we know we want to be great examples and always, always put our Lord first, right. And, and the intentions and the goodness that he is. Um, but, but many people don't have the same experience that we do, you know, you and I and, and other people with large families and a strong understanding of the faith and education and, and the nuances of love of the family and the support. So I think, you know, walking that line in ethics to, to first always kind of look at it and think, assume at least good intention, you know, yeah. for most people's actions, even if it's the wrong action and, and they're behaving in the wrong way. I think we really, we owe it to, to humankind and to ourselves to assume that that individual is doing what they think is the good. Um, it often isn't the good. You and I know that. I and mean, yeah. we know that, you know, the, the promotion of, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get a nice controversial topic here, but the promotion of say, um, you know, gender identity ethics and stuff at, in, in a prepubescent period of time, you know, there's, there's, that's definitely an evil there. Yeah. And so, but, but many people are, they're confused and they're unaware of the nuances of why that's a wrong, you know, even the American Academy of Pediatrics is, is walking down the wrong path on that. Well, and to some uh, extent, you know, it, we have to start with these, these principles of the dignity of the human person, Right. And, right. and so to basically the, the two great commandments to love the Lord, your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself, that we, we have to recognize the dignity of the human person. And that doesn't always mean giving them what they think they want, right? right. It means giving them what is ultimately the best for them. Uh, and so the, is in your example here, um, there's a, a true desire on the part of people who may be acting in, incorrectly uh, to say, I want to 
honor and respect the person and the person is saying they want this therefore we should we should facilitate that so mm-hmm. there is a a good that's being at the center of it right the the good is that i want to respect that person um what isn't far enough is the realization that in respecting that person's wishes at this moment you're actually not respecting that person's dignity Right, and that's right. that's where that nuance comes in, yeah. but yeah. but to always start with that, looking for the good rather than pointing out the bad. Yeah, you know, I, I think of Paul um, in the Book of Acts as he's going up on Mars Hill at the Areopagus, and he says, "I see that you're a very religious people in every way. You even have mm-hmm. a statue to an unknown god. Let me proclaim to you in truth what you uh, worship without knowledge." Right. He starts with what he assumes is the good and starts from there rather than just coming up and knocking down all the statues. Right, right. right. Yeah. And, and I think we need to do the same thing on the, there's a lot of rhetoric right now in society, whether it's vaccine, COVID, whether it's politics, religion, the gender identity issues, all of those. I think if we would really, you know, step back and, and start to look at it that way and kind of build upon what, where our commonalities exist we could get a lot further than the, than the loud and raucous, you know, constant drumbeat from, from different media sources, <laughs> whether they be television podcasts, you know, red or whatever they are, you know, and, 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 you know, I don't know how to, I don't know. I think it starts at the home, definitely starts at the domestic church, right. You know, and, and helping our children see that as examples in our own, our own reactions to people's actions, you know, yeah. it's going to help them along and, and maybe they'll, you know, God willing, they'll, you know, be much further along when they're young adults than I was when I, you know, was. So we're talking today with Deacon Kevin Tulipana, who is a DO and the, the executive vice president of the Arizona market at Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Deacon Kevin, there are just so many examples of this desire for everything to be clear cut. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so often you have people look at at ethics and this question of remote cooperation with evil, passive, even passive remote cooperation with evil. And they will look at it and they'll assume or accuse it of being situational ethics. Well, you're just twisting the situation uh, to make it okay. What's your response to that? How do we differentiate between the church's social teaching and moral teaching and ethics and this idea of everything is relative? Yeah, yeah, that's a that is a tough one because relativity does kind of get into that sometimes. And again, I think it goes back to those the simple principles. We never really have, haven't gotten through those yet. The, the principle of double effect. So we have touched on the fact that you know the morality of act is is generally generally um, guided by the intention of the act itself. So the evil is not the reason. Um, we have to assume that the action is is a good that it's morally good or at least neutral. Yeah. You know, this is something that, that, that helps with it. So, um, and then that the good is actually the intended again. So it goes right. back to that, that the, the good is what our focus is on and that the good is not achieved through um, the bad itself, you right. know? And so that's what keeps us from being, and then, and then of course the good has to outweigh the bad. So that's right. what keeps it being just situational and when you put it into context of all the things being pointed toward, you know, again, uh, in the vaccine production, I think we could put it another way that, you know, the, these 
these vaccines are produced, you know, or studied utilizing that stem cell. Again, very remote cooperation with any potential evil. But again, the intention wasn't to support, you know, the manufacturers of that stem cell or even, you know, the production of stem cell lines from abortions. Rather, it was the good of producing a vaccine for an emerging pandemic, you know. Um, the act of, of that production, again, it's, it's a good, it's focused toward the end of, you know, um, of actually protecting, protecting humankind itself. And so I think that's how we really get ourselves from, you know, if we step back and really put it into context of what the initial intention was, what the, what the end is what our action or participation with it is, it can keep it from becoming purely situational. Now, let me see. I'm going to test myself. We're going to see how well I do. So the the makers of the vaccine, you're saying, would be remotely cooperating uh, with, remotely materially cooperating with evil. And they're doing Mm -hmm. so, I would think, in an active way. They're actively, uh, remotely, materially cooperating with evil. Would that mean that we who receive the vaccine or even a step further into the passive cooperation. Mm-hmm. So Correct. explain yeah. the difference between that active and that passive in the quadrant of trying to understand. Yeah. Again, I mean, it's, it's kind of nuanced, obviously, but it's, it's that it goes back to, you know, you are not like, wait, let me put this a little. <laughs> this, is, this, this is why they have a master's level degree uh, for, yeah. for medical ethics. Cause it's tricky. That's, it is tricky. Yeah, it is tricky. And of course, I, I think I even said to you, there, there are probably there are many people who are much more eloquent than I in this. But, you know, it, it becomes much more passive because, again, we're not, you are not participating. You're not out there, you know, producing those stem cell lines. You're not picketing or promoting that that's the only way that they, these are produced. In fact, you don't even, most people aren't even aware of it. Now, again, ignorance does not make it right. Right. But aren't even aware of the, of that, that there are these, you know. And I, I, I venture to say that on this, in this, in our uh, discussion today, people are, are now aware, which they weren't before, that measles, mumps, rubella, you know, the Verivax, the chickenpox vaccine, the human papilloma vaccine, all utilize the stem cell. And like you said, also product lines, you know, flavor enhancers, all sorts of things. Doesn't make it right, but we are passively cooperating with the evil, but it doesn't make us an active participant in that evil. Yeah. So, yeah. Deacon, any uh, any last thoughts for us today? Wow, you know, I mean, the, the world is fraught with controversy and, and different things right now. And again, I think I think you know that simple principle of really you know pointing at what. Well, well let me not go down that line. I think there's a lot of misinformation out here. You brought it up, but we'll st- we'll end where we started. You know, the National Catholic Bioethics Center really does give people great guidance on on uh, many things ethical. They do have some stances on vaccine production um, that that kind of at least give you a framework of when you can participate or, or participate with particular things. I think the nuances of our current pandemic are going to be even more sticky pretty soon. You know, the state of Illinois, the governor actually just issued a mandate for the vaccine for healthcare workers that you know starts getting into personal freedom and choice and. What's going to happen in that situation? It's going to be difficult because, you know, the, the Catholic Church, the USCCB, even the Pope himself says, we as Catholics can participate in this vaccine. It is, at, it is morally illicit. Um, but I guarantee you there are those Catholics who really do have a strong stance still personally that they don't feel like they can participate regardless of how remote. 
you know, with, with that vaccine. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of controversy still. I think if we all take a step back, think about what our intentions truly are and, and, and the good of another, you know, we'll be in a better place overall. It's not, it's not going to always answer the questions, but there are great resources out there. Go back to the, the you know, varietal truth, the NCBC, the USCCB, you know, the Vatican, and that you were going to be much safer than, than hearing and listening to some of the, some of the other pundits out there. So, Deacon Kevin Tulipano, thank you so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. If you missed any part of my conversation with Deacon Kevin Tulipana, or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there, you can also look at the link for our Patreon support community. Up at the top right-hand corner, you'll see something that says Patreon support the show. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and in gratitude, each and every week, we give an extra segment. To learn more about this Patreon support community, to see what it takes to be a member of that community, and to to listen to those extra segments, just click that link at OutsideTheWalls.com. Now let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching putting the magisterium, the documents of the church, the catechism, magisterial documents, fathers and doctors of the church, and so much more right at your fingertips. You can learn more by going to verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. When the Pharisees, with some scribes who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, they observed that some of his disciples ate their meals with unclean, that is, unwashed, hands. For the Pharisees, and in fact all Jews, do not eat without carefully washing their hands, keeping the tradition of the elders. And on coming from the marketplace, they do not eat without purifying themselves. And there are many other things that they have traditionally observed, the purification of cups and jugs and kettles and beds. So the Pharisees and scribes questioned him, Why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders, but instead eat a meal with unclean hands? He responded, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines human precepts. You disregard God's commandment, but cling to human tradition. He summoned the crowd again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that enters from the outside can defile that person, but the things that come from within are what defile. From within people, from their hearts, come evil thoughts, unchastity, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, licentiousness, envy, blasphemy, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from within, and they defile. That reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. How often are we, you and I, like the Pharisees and scribes? We don't like to hear that. We like to think of ourselves as the heroes of the story, and we look at them as, as the antagonists in this story. But how often are we just like them? 
we want things to be laid out in nice, easy categories with policies and procedures that are clearly laid out that we know if we're doing the right thing or we're not doing the right thing, right? We want everything to just be so well-defined that we will always know on what side we are. But Jesus says to them, and he says to us, things are not always that clear-cut. They're not always that easy. And what we need to do, rather than looking at these externals and the, the actions that, that are visible, is we need to turn and look at our hearts. What is the disposition of our heart? Do we have the intention to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself? Do we live that out? Or are we concerned with simply keeping the letter of the law without that encounter and relationship with God? This is a much harder thing to do because it's not so clearly laid out that we can say, oh, oh, there was the line, we crossed over it, now you got to go to confession, right? We have to look and say, in my heart, are my motivations such that they care for the other rather than simply looking out for myself? It reminds me of, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about whether or not you can eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And he says, I know full well that there's no such thing as an idol. I know that that these are not real gods. And so I can, without any problem, I can eat this meat. Um, however, I know that not everyone has that knowledge. And if that leads someone to stumble, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I won't do that because I don't want to cause my, my fellow brother to stumble. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 9, he says, um, quoting the people, but all things, all things are permissible. All things are lawful. And he says, yes, but not all things are beneficial. And he repeats them, but, but all things are lawful. Yes, but not all things build up. And then he says this beautiful piece. He says, no one should seek his own advantage, but rather that of his neighbor. This is where it comes down to. What's our motivation? What is that that's driving us to an action or away from an action? And is that motivation pleasing to God or not? Our reading from church history today comes from The Mirror of Faith by William of Theory, Abbott. When in your life of faith you are confronted with the deeper mysteries, it is natural to become a little frightened. When this happens, take heart, faithful Christian. Do not raise objections, but ask with loving submission, how can these things be? Let your question be a prayer, an expression of love and self-surrender to God. Let it be an expression of your humble desire not to penetrate his sublime majesty, but to find salvation through the saving deeds of God our Savior. Then, the angel of good counsel will reply, When the paraclete comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, he will remind you of everything and teach you all truths, even as no one knows a man's secret thoughts except his own spirit within him, so no one comprehends the mysteries of God except the Spirit of God. Hasten, therefore, to receive the Holy Spirit. He is with you when you call upon him. You can call upon him only because he is already present. But when he comes in answer to your prayer, he comes with an abundance of divine blessings. He is the river 
whose streams give joy to the city of God. If, when he comes, he finds you humble, silent and trembling at the words of God, he will rest upon you and reveal what God the Father has hidden from the wise and the prudent of the world. You will then begin to understand the things holy wisdom could have told his disciples on earth. But they were unable to bear it until the Spirit of Truth came who was to teach them all truth. For this reason, we cannot hope to learn from the lips of any man truths that truth himself could not convey. As he himself has told us, God is spirit. As those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, so those who wish to know him must seek understanding of their faith and perception of its pure and simple truth only in the Holy Spirit. In the darkness and ignorance of this life, the Holy Spirit enlightens the poor in spirit. He is the love that draws them on, the sweetness that attracts them, the way in which a man approaches God. He is the love of the lover. He is devotion. He is piety. From one degree of faith to the next, he is ever revealing to believers the justice of God so that grace follows grace, and the faith that comes from hearing yields to a faith enlightened by understanding. That reading comes from The Mirror of Faith by William of Theory Abbott. And here we return to our topic, that that there's no amount of, of wrangling and wrestling that can come to an accurate conclusion without the invitation and the welcoming and the infilling and the enlightenment brought to us by relationship with the Holy Spirit. If we try to calculate and, and add up right and wrong and figure out all of the nuances of a situation without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, without our ear attuned to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through our prayer and also through our church, then we're going to find ourselves maybe in a rational place, but certainly not in a place that God wants us to be. So as we wrestle with these big questions, as we try to the best of our ability to live holy and pure lives, we start by submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit. We start by giving ourselves over in humility and docility to the teachings handed on to us by the church. This is the place of safety, not in the machinations or calculations that we might be able to throw together, but in humbly coming and submitting ourselves in prayer, in study, in humility to what God would give us through his church, through our pastors, through our bishops, and through his own presence helping to form our consciences. And as you seek to form your conscience— don't forget to visit the National Catholic Bioethics Center at ncbcenter.org. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, join their numbers, and get extra segments, extra content as well. Until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things, 
And who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Thank you.